Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. It's more like Boris <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The snowflakes have been falling at Downing Street this morning, uh, but there's still no sign of a full-blown revolt on the Brexit barricades. We were hearing from Ross Kempsell uh, in the last hour that it's been a relatively quiet week, but there's still lots of game-playing going on. Jacob Rees-Mogg is already urging the Prime Minister to shut down Parliament in order to stop any kind of uh, no-deal Brexit from being forced through. Uh, also, of course, uh, we've got Airbus and their boss, Tom Enders, saying, well, of course, if there is a no-deal, uh, we'll all have to leave the country because there won't be any investment in the UK. You'd expect that from him. It's an Anglo-French company, and I wouldn't think that it makes any difference to anybody whatsoever. Coming up in this hour, though, we'll take more of your calls, 0344 499 1000, and we'll find out why fracking is not as dangerous as everybody wants us to believe that it is. First up, though, uh, we're going to talk to Dr Helen Stokes Lampard, chair of the Royal College of GPs, because it turns out uh, that Matt Hancock has come up with another great plan to use loads and loads of taxpayers' money, millions, in fact, uh, to subsidise drug companies to make the drugs that they should already be making anyway and selling to us. It makes no sense to me. I'm hoping that she'll be able to tell us why this is happening. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So we get told on a regular basis that, you know, our children can't get antibiotics, that we can't get antibiotics because it may well be that the antibiotics that we're being given uh, is going to make everybody immune to antibiotics. And so therefore we shouldn't have them anyway. Well, that's medicine. Uh, I don't see the point of having medicine if you don't actually get to be given it in order to get better if you're suffering from something that it can cure. We now find ourselves in a rather bizarre situation whereby uh, the companies that make all of these drugs only make the drugs that make the money, which I suppose makes sense up to a point. But one of the reasons they don't make some drugs is because they know that the doctors won't give them away. It's a rather strange and curious circle to square, and we're going to seek the advice and the help of Dr Helen Stokes Lampard, Chair of the Royal College of GPs, to see if we can find out uh, how to get through this particular maze and miasma. Uh, Dr Helen, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, I know it sounds slightly cynical that uh, I'm making this this particular case, but surely it makes no sense for the NHS to subsidise a drug company to make drugs that they then sell back to us uh, for which we pay them. 
Well, it does sound bizarre, but actually, this is when you when you think it through, it makes a lot more sense. So uh-huh. let me try and explain. Okay. So essentially, antibiotics are drugs that we should only use when people have bacterial infections yes. that will respond to them. So you're going to be really sick and need something really quite serious to work for you. Mm. Over the over the years, we've had many wonderful antibiotics. It all started with penicillin, but what happens is the bugs have evolved and the bugs become resistant to the drugs we're giving them. So it's the bugs that do the evolving. And so we're running out of options. We're having more and more what we call resistant infections developing. So we do need more antibiotics. I think we're all agreed on that. Mm. The problem is it's not a cost-effective thing for a pharmaceutical company to invest in the research. So to create new drugs takes many, many years, decades sometimes. Right. Um, and it's very expensive to do. It costs many millions to do it. And, of course, for antibiotics, they're used for a relatively short amount of time and quite intensively. If a drug company spends all their money making a drug, let's say, for diabetes or high blood pressure, people take those 30, 40, 50 years. So the market and the payback to the drug company is huge and over a long time. For antibiotics, it's a short period of time that they get any money for. So mm. what? And, then, and so we've had no new class of antibiotics for over 30 years. That's why we're in such a pickle. And so there have been lots of things tried. Nothing else has worked. And so now the NHS, like healthcare systems around the world, is getting quite desperate. I mean, last year, over 2,000 people died in the UK because of these super-resistant infections. So we are getting very concerned. And, that, and so one way forward is for the NHS to collaborate better with the pharmaceutical industry. And we have got an amazing pharmaceutical industry in the UK. Mm. And, and to invest in them, to give them reassurance that they're not going to go bankrupt trying to solve the antibiotic crisis, but that it's in the NHS's interest for them to come up with the drugs. Sure. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I've got a couple of questions for you. One, I don't think the pharmaceutical business is in any danger of going out of business anytime soon, because whatever happens in the world, you do know that you're going to, people are going to get sick and they're going to need medicine. What I've always wondered about is why, and I know at the risk of being sound, of being labelled some kind of Corbynista Venezuelan maniac, why don't we make our own drugs in this country? Why don't we actually form ourselves uh, a company that the government runs, that the government owns, which is sort of for the people, by the people, and which does not then profiteer off the people. You certainly could do that. I mean, and I've always thought, why doesn't the NHS make its own needles and syringes yeah. and blood-taking yeah. boxes and all? And there, there are so many things. I mean, there is an argument, however, that the NHS does the caring and the delivery of care bit, and mm. others do what they do well. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to get into the party politics of it, but there are plenty of commercial organisations that would say we can do it better and more efficiently than you can do it because this is our area. Yeah, but one of the things, yeah, well, and, I, and I would say they're probably right to say that. However, one of the areas of expertise the NHS does not have is negotiating contracts because they pay way <laughs> over the odds for everything. So, in fact, it well. would be better if they knew what they were making for their own purposes and used that kind of expertise, if you like, uh, so they wouldn't have to. They wouldn't have to sort of negotiate the deals because it's such a big organisation. I mean, it's like a mass. It's like a country. The NHS. You know, we ought to be it able to get. We ought massive. to be able to. We ought to be able to get uh, companies to be begging us to give them uh, business because there's so much of it. I really suggest you. Why don't you pitch that question to Simon Stevens, chief executive of the <laughs> NHS? I'd love to hear his answer. Yeah, well, I may pitch it to Matt Hancock actually, because I mean he's a relatively new uh, Minister of Health, isn't he? He's sort of a guy who yeah, might need might need a bit of help on that front. But um, I mean, is that also a problem for you? And I know that, that Jeremy Hunt had said that he wanted to stay inside the NHS for as long as he possibly could, but of course he was lured away by uh, the foreign job, the foreign uh, mm. uh, office job. I mean, is it a problem that we don't have sort of experts at the very top politically? Well, having a Secretary of State, I mean, let's be clear, any Secretary of State comes in not necessarily knowing a huge amount about the brief. They're reliant on the team around them. But their job is to steer a course and to be supportive in Parliament and Mm. to fight in Parliament for their bits. 
So Matt Hancock, new, minister, new Secretary of State, has been fighting very hard for healthcare in England. And bear in mind, the health is a devolved issue, so it's England only. Um, and so they bring fresh ideas and fresh energy to, to, to the post. I mean, the NHS in England, Simon Stevens is, say, the chief executive there. And the important thing for me is that we see close working at those very high levels, mm. that our ministers, um, chief executive of the NHS, the heads of the Royal Colleges, the trades unions are working together to deliver the best possible healthcare because that's what patients need. They don't want us fighting and squabbling. They want us seeking solutions and lobbying government to get the maximum resources in the NHS. So I would argue that I'm worried less about the medical knowledge of the senior minister, more about their passion for delivering great care. Right. And what about the situation with GPs? Because I'm I'm a parent and so I know how hard it is sometimes to get drugs for your kids. And I'm I'm not stupid enough to think that I should get antibiotics when they wouldn't be any good. But what I do know is that when one of my kids does get an infection which would be cured by antibiotics and we know exactly which one to get that you still can't get it until you go back for a second time you know having uh, having said to the doctor well i'm sorry uh, we've now been six days with a with a terrible infection yeah. which could have been cured in one day if you just given us the drugs last week I know that this is the, the classic damned if you do and damned if you don't situation that gps are yeah. in so we're, we're under constant pressure to use fewer and fewer antibiotics, Mm. yet the report out today implies that still up to one in five of the prescriptions we give in general practice may not be necessary. Now, I would argue that you don't know until after the event, until if it was necessary or not. And that's the challenge that we face. Mm. Uh, If we don't treat early enough, then people can go on to develop bad complications. But we do know that we're using too many antibiotics overall. So it's always that dilemma. And because we've got a very stressed NHS at the moment, we simply don't have enough GPs, we don't have enough nurses and other people in our team, then we're rushed and under pressure and people find it difficult to get through the door. So there's always that anxiety about will I be able to come back for a prescription? Mm. And what some GPs do is use a deferred prescription system and say, look, if this is not better in three, four days' time, or you're deteriorating, there will be a prescription available for you. I will create it, so you just have, you don't need the appointment. Yeah. I will leave it to your judgment to pick it up, and that does work in some situations. That would be good, actually. There are various workarounds, yeah. yeah. And if you've, got, if you've got a child with a recurrent problem, then that may be something to discuss with a GP yeah. at a future date. Well, you know what it's like. I mean, I've got, I've got one, one, one son who, who gets, gets earache from time to time. You know, it's always yeah. the same. Uh, it's just the way that his body kind of somehow uh, accepts infection. You know, you get some, mm. some, sometimes... I used to get bad bad throat when I was a kid. Um, you know, and when he gets an earache, he needs antibiotics to fix it, and it's gone in a day. If he doesn't get them, he's in pain for like a week until he gets them. And we just always know as parents, and I know that not all parents are as brilliant as I am, obviously. Um, I'm joking, <laughs> by the way. But you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, we do know what's going on a lot of the time with our own children. And, and, and I said, this is that, that ongoing balancing act. And uh, this is one of those situations where having a good relationship with a known GP can really help. Yeah. And, and again, in a stress system, having that continuity of care can be hard. What I wouldn't want, however, is for us to be saying, oh, well, any time your child has an ear infection, here, have some antibiotics because we're making a special case. Because in time, your child will grow out of this problem. The antibiotics be necessary everything will move on and if we do keep throwing antibiotics at it every time then the risk is they'll stop working for your child anyway and then we all lose so it it, it is you know mike it's complex i think we've got to recognize the gps are professionals doing a a tricky balancing act the nhs is a system under pressure but the whole antibiotic challenge is much wider than just the nhs in general practice Mm. i mean huge amount of antibiotics used in hospital operations i mean quite understandably but are we are they always necessary huge amount of antibiotics used in agriculture farming industry well that uh, was something yeah i mean that was that was something one particular gp pointed out to me on this show some weeks ago that if we were really serious Mm. about eradicating uh 
the, the overuse of antibiotics, we'd stop the use of it in, in animal feed. Well, and that is part of this new plan that's coming out today that Matt Hancock's talking about, is actually rolling that together. Now, responsible farmers and responsible vets have been doing this for some time, but I think the difficulty is that when you you put antibiotics in animal feed and so on, you seem to uh, make... do things more cheaply mm. and you know we do we do demand our food very cheap in the uk and we might have to accept costs may rise a bit but the whole this is a national and it's a global problem um, and obviously i want us all to work together to find solutions and mm. work with the responsible food suppliers the responsible vets to come up with, with the right answers because we don't want animals suffering unnecessarily either no sure uh, one final question, actually, from a listener, uh, if you don't mind, Dr. Helen, and it says this. Can you ask why the drug companies charge uh, something like £200 for 28 tablets of liothyronine uh, in this country, and it's only about £15 in Germany? OK, so, okay that's a very specific question about a specific uh, supply and demand issue. Yeah. Liothyronine is not a commonly used drug. The, the normal levothyroxine, which is... So this is a drug for people with thyroid problems, deficiency of the thyroid gland. Uh, it's a peculiar problem that we've got. There have been worldwide supply problems of it, um, and it's variable. Sometimes it's expensive and sometimes it's not. So very contentious um, it's very topical. Lots of people are talking about it, and the mm. NHS is trying to negotiate the best deals it can on drugs. But occasionally, when there's a shortage, you get supply um, it influences the price. Yeah, but of course, if you listen to some people in this current political climate, we won't have any drugs soon anyway because we're leaving the European Union and we won't be able to make any. <laughs> well, <laughs> I couldn't possibly come. No, of course not. I'm not going to get you into that argument. Thank you very much indeed. Dr. Helen Stokes Lampard, there, Chair of the Royal College uh, of GPs. Clearly, it's uh, a complete and utter mess the way that the NHS is run clearly uh, the management of the NHS needs completely being overhauled and what I would say uh, is it makes perfect sense for the NHS to manufacture their own stuff it is literally like the, the GDP of a small country and if they did all that they'd one save a load of money two become a lot more efficient and three stop getting themselves ripped off by these drug companies which we're now going to subsidize to the tune of millions and millions of pounds crazy isn't it more blasted rhetoric from the banana republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna kill my head. I got a bad case loving you. Nothing like a good cheesy doctor song, that's what I say. 0344-499-1000 is the number. We had some very good doctor on just there, though. Helen Stokes-Lampard, she can come on any time. Very, very forthright, very, very interesting. Uh, couldn't be too specific about certain things. However, she agreed with me that it would be much more sensible if the NHS actually bought, uh, instead of buying the drugs that they uh, they have to buy, they actually manufactured them. It would make loads of sense. We're going to take some calls now, though. Uh, Ian is over in uh, Palmer's Green in London. First, though, Lorraine is in Norwich. Hello, Lorraine. Oh, hello. Good morning. Very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Now, um, you were talking earlier about this thyroid drug, uh, which was much more expensive. And the doctor's answer was uh, this about supply and demand. So does that mean that there's less supply uh, in this country than there is in Germany, maybe? No. um, What it means, um, Mike, is lyothyrene is a a treatment for hypothyroidism. Mm. Uh, It's one of two drugs, um, thyroxine, is very cost-effective, very cheap. Um, but the lyothyrene is approximately £300 for a pack of 28. Right. Um, so what the doctor is actually saying is 
um, even if you need this drug, which is complementary to the thyroxine, right. with some people with hypothyroidism, so they actually would benefit greatly from having this drug. They're saying now um, you can't have the lyothyrene. You have to stick with the thyroxine that's probably pennies in comparison. Oh, so does it do the same thing, though? Um, it doesn't, no. it treat, It's very complex, yeah. um, the thyroid. Uh, it, it treats the T3 um, in in the disease, and uh, thyroxine treats the T4. Okay. So the combination of two can work well, but many patients are being denied because the the T3 lysine is so expensive. Well, that's the other problem, um, isn't it? You get told because of where you live sometimes with regard to certain drugs, and I know that this is true of, of breast cancer drugs, that you can't get them unless you live somewhere else. It's a postcode lottery, yeah, isn't it? it is. So um, they're, they're allocating funds more to one area than others and, mm. and it's unlucky for you if you suffer from an illness right um you're just not going to get the drugs but my my quandary on this is is because it's so cheap in germany yeah. and on the continent at 30 pounds a pack why um can't the nhs have um somebody source the drug at a cheaper price mm. and sell it to the NHS well, that, that well that's the trouble that's um, one of the things they're not very good at as I was saying to her you know what they're terrible at it seems is negotiating any any kind of deal and they get charged whatever anybody wants to charge them and they just pay it it seems to be just a flat rate yeah. a rolling contract um, I mean what could be interesting is, is if we do um, leave the EU yeah. um, on the 29th of March um, could we then be free to negotiate with other countries out of contracts, maybe for cheaper generic yeah. drugs? Yeah, well, I don't see why not, because there's probably some European rule that says we have to use it from here, then we can't go to Germany to get it and all that kind of thing. It's a very good point, Lorraine. Thank you very much indeed uh, for calling. We've got uh, some more calls to take. Uh, I'm going to talk to Ian now, who's in North London. Hello, Ian. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, Ian Puddock, you very kindly tweet me from time to time. I do. Um, what have you got to say? Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to let you know, really, there was a brilliant, brilliant documentary um, on the BBC a few years ago, and I'm not a fan of the BBC, called Can Jerry Robinson Save the NHS? He was the former chief executive of Coca-Cola. Yeah. And basically they gave him a ward up in, up in the, north of the, uh, the north of England that was hemorrhaging money. Um, it was just a complete mess. Right. Um, huge, huge waiting list for operations. And they t he basically had to sort it all out and remanage the whole process. And it was three episodes filmed over 12 months. Right. And they didn't give him any money. So he couldn't come in and say, well, I've got more money. We can do this. We can do that. Mm. He, had to, he had to cut the deficit and improve the services. And he did that. And he, at the end of it, they were interviewing him. He said it's the hardest thing he's ever done in his whole life and he would never do it again. What, just trying to break, cut was, through the red tape? Yeah, 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 but he did it. He did it really successfully, and he shows you in the documentary over said three episodes how he did it. And the first episode was him for three months doing nothing other than walk around the hospitals talking to people, understanding and identifying the problems, posing potential solutions, but then and then discussing it at every level within the, within the, within the organisation. Right. And then at the end, the last three months, was the implementation of his solutions. Right. And he got backlashes from the consultants. It was just a real insight into the culture of the NHS. Yeah. NHS. Oh, and you're that's absolutely really right. what he was battling against, the culture. Well, but that's he, it. And as I said, I mean, there's, there's many things that they're very good at. Uh, and, and, you know, giving free medicine at the point of, uh, of sale is fantastic. However, negotiating is not their strong point. And, you know, buying stuff is not their strong point. They get ripped off everywhere they go.
the documentary illustrates that perfectly. I can't, you know, I recommend people look at it on YouTube. Mm. But, you know, just saying, look, you know, we're going to chuck more money at the NHS isn't necessarily the solution. I'm sure it would help, but it's not, uh, it's the answer is getting the right people in yeah. the right positions, being negotiating mm. and managing. No, absolutely right, Ian. Thank you very much indeed uh, for the call. A couple of quick uh, notes on that thyroid drug, actually. Brian says, Mike, I use that thyroid drug you were just talking about. Uh, I'm in currently Morocco, where I had to buy some. It cost me £3 for a month's supply, made in France, one times 28 days, uh, times 100 milligrams. Uh, and Peter says, I was trying to get that thyroid drug from the USA one year ago and found there was a worldwide shortage. Apparently it's made from pig thyroids. Is there a worldwide shortage of pig organs? Well, I'm afraid I can't answer that question. I mean, we know many things here at the Independent Republic, but pig organs, not a speciality of mine, I'm afraid. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Some maniacs got in charge of the the music system today. I've got a feeling I know who it is. There will be hell to pay. I can tell you that. Uh, How about this from uh, Madge, who says, uh, Mike Graham makes a good point with regards to the NHS. In Wales, we get free prescriptions. No idea why. But I remember a few years ago on holiday in Cornwall, it cost 32 quid for what was paracetamol with a fancy name. 
Well, I mean, of course, you can get free prescriptions in England, uh, providing that you qualify for free prescriptions. I think they cost about seven or eight quid now otherwise. Um, But certainly the way that the NHS is run um, economically is a complete shambles. There is no way that you would ever adopt anything that they do in any kind of business sense. Of course, they're very good at what they do in terms of delivering medicine and delivering health care. But what they're not very good at uh, is dealing with money. And so giving them more money to spend is is a very, very bad idea. We're learning today. They're now going to hand out millions of pounds to drug companies to make them make drugs that they should be making anyway. That's the point. That is the trouble. And surely it would make more sense if the NHS just had their own drug company and manufactured their own drugs. It makes perfect sense to me and indeed to everybody else. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. You can text us as well. Text the word TALK to 87222 uh, and text will cost you 25 pence plus your normal network rate. Let's talk to Malcolm Grimston now, though, uh, who's Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Energy Policy and Technology from Imperial College because fracking, which is always in the news, is back in the news because it turns out uh, that everyone who's been telling us that fracking causes earthquakes has got it completely wrong. Malcolm, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Thank you for joining us. Is that right? Right, fracking doesn't cause earthquakes. The word earthquake carries with it, I think, impressions that are just not accurate to what no. we were talking about mm. about here. The, yes. the, the the earlier ones we were talking about was about equivalent to a pretty heavy lorry going past your front door. Right. And there's lots of examples. You know, living here in London, mm. uh, there are many places where tube, you know, a, a basement or the bottom of a hotel or whatever will be quite close to a tube line. Yes. You can feel the tremors of. Or the you tube could be there. living next door to Robbie Williams excavating <laughs> for a new swimming pool. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's ever going to happen to me. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, so it, it's a matter of proportion with these things, and I think quite often we 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 latch onto a word which has you know quite rightly quite terrifying uh, implications, yes. but don't really fit this situation. I mean, what we've seen, particularly up in the northwest of England, where there's been a few sort of fracking trials going on, uh, is that places, areas around the Fylde Coast and Blackpool were, we were being told, the subject of quite a lot of little earth tremors. But, but then, depending on who you spoke to, other people said, yeah, well, th- those happen all the time anyway. Yeah, I mean, there's no... We should keep this in perspective. There is no way of getting energy that doesn't have some sort of downside. Mm. And uh, it's a matter of balancing. Now, in the case of uh, natural gas, if we... If we're going to increase our dependence on wind and solar, which don't come necessarily when we need them, right. we're going to need to generate an awful lot of electricity with gas, let alone the gas that we burn in our homes for heating and cooking and the like. And our North Sea reserves are running quite short. So right. if we can find another way of doing it in the UK, there are environmental advantages of not having to ship the gas from from uh, Norway or, or ultimately from Iran or Russia, mm. and also security uh, issues and balance of payments issues. But on the other hand, you know, having... A, you know, an industry like this in a local area, particularly a rural area, is bound to cause disruptions, and we recognise that. And it's a matter of having to balance the pros and cons of various ways forward, mm. rather than imagining that we can take any one of them out of context and just look at just the negatives of one particular issue. No, sure. I mean, Quadrilla is the company uh, concerned here, I suppose, and, and they were forced to suspend their fracking last year. And I think a lot of this was up in the northwest of England uh, because they breached the limit of 0.5 magnitude on on the Richter scale. I guess, uh, up in Lancashire. What's being suggested is that that limit is raised, which I guess is similar to what you've been saying about the types of seismic um, sort of episodes that are caused by all manner of things. Yeah, and the, I mean, the Richter scale is a funny thing. It's, a, it's what they call a log scale. Right. So an earthquake which is uh, 
two on the Richter scale is ten times the size of one that is one, not double it. Really? Uh, yeah, and so an earthquake which is six on the Richter scale is a million times Blimey. more than a scale one. And when you start getting up to the really horrendous ones, like mm. the ones uh, that, that we've seen, uh, for example, in the Pacific Rim or in California, where yeah. there, there are much bigger faults than there are in, in our part of the world, we're talking about earthquakes which are 100 million times, you know, level eight. And also they've, they've now established times. as well, it depends on the depth of them, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed. The, the, the geology is fairly well understood with these kinds of things. We we should also remember there's something like two million fracked wells around the world that have been going since the late 60s, early 70s. There's a huge amount of information about this uh, technology that, that should allow us to... I mean, my belief is that regulatory standards in the UK will probably be higher than a lot of areas, which is uh, clearly no bad thing. Um, but, you know, it keeps coming back to saying if we don't do this, uh, our dependence on imported gas is likely to be rather higher. Uh, as long as we don't, you know, my own view is that in the transition away from coal towards gas towards low carbon sources for climate change reasons, we should view gas as being something of a stopgap. But having said that, it is going to be a stopgap in the future. Do we want to provide it from, from within the UK if we possibly mm. can, right. or do we want to get it from other parts of the world where in addition to the challenges with getting it out of the ground, you've also got the transportation issues. Yeah. I mean, we know a lot about Americans' uh, experience of fracking, and they seem to use it quite freely and, and in, in quite, quite widespread manners. Uh, is it something that's done in lots of parts of the world? Because we seem to have a kind of, um, whatever the opposite of an affinity is to it, we don't seem to like the idea of it in this country. Now, the U.S. certainly led the way with it. And, and to be fair, there are very large areas of the United States where pretty much nobody lives. It's, it's a much less densely populated country than, uh, than the U.K. And there are whole swathes in the middle of, of America where you can do these sorts of things without causing problems for local people. So we should bear that in mind, that the parallels are not precise. Uh, but nonetheless, actually, the, one, the brightest spot in terms of climate change uh, over the last years, which is what I, personally I'm really worries me in this mm. whole picture, is because the U.S. fracked gas and so moved away from using so much coal for its electricity. The U.S. is one of the relatively few countries in the world which has uh, had really significant reductions in its greenhouse gas uh, emissions over that, uh, mm. over that period of time. So, again, it's pros and cons. There's no perfect answer to any of this. No, indeed. And as far as the uh, the sort of future of fracking in this country is concerned, if you were able to get this um, this limit raised, if you like, to one and a half rather than 0.5, would that make it much easier for companies other than Quadrilla to come in and then start working on, on the process? Yeah, I mean, it would it would certainly, I mean, clearly would reduce one of the barriers. We There's still a relatively, I think we're still quite at the beginning of being able to actually assess how big the fracking reserve is. We used to have these massive North Sea uh, gas reserves, which we could drill from the North Sea. And there was a 10-year period between about 1995 when we were actually a net gas exporter because of that. We now import well over half of our natural gas, and that's probably going to be, uh, and that's a proportion that's likely to just get bigger over the, over the years of the next decade. Um, now, whether fracking can come anywhere near to replacing that or not, I don't think we know as yet. Mm. So it's, it's important not to uh, view this as being the answer to all of our problems. We just don't know. And there may be other barriers we come across that, that limit it. And so it, it's difficult at this stage to say very, very precisely what the, what the uh, potential uh, is. But having said that, clearly, if there are barriers of this nature, which are acceptable, mm. nobody would, would ever, you know, 
justify changing your regulatory structure to the extent that these things are actually seriously dangerous. Yeah. Uh, given that, then uh, I'm sure that other companies would find it more interesting to to uh, explore what the potential is. Right. Because I've got a question here from Stephen who's tweeted in, uh, who says, ask about the effects, please, of chemicals on groundwater due to fracking, uh, which again is something that is often asked. Uh, I don't know the answer to it. What, what can you tell us? No, again, and, and it's, a, it's a perfectly fair question. The fracking is done at quite a, a significant depth yeah. um, underneath the water table, underneath the areas where... So so there is no real mixing with mm. the water that's used to frack. Right. I mean, just briefly, I'm sure you listen know what fracking is. It stands for uh, hydraulic fracturing. Mm. You've got rocks which have gas tied in with the rock structure. If you can smash those rocks open, then the gas can escape and you can use it. And you use highly pressurised water to do that. So that's what fractures the rock to let this gas right. get out. And, uh, and you have to effectively drill down into the earth to get that. Yeah, right? it's not it's not very di- different from what happens with, with say, um, uh, geothermal energy, where yeah. you need to put water down at high pressure, then pass it through the rocks and then recover the water, uh, both because you can reuse quite a lot of it, Mm. some of the chemicals, but also to make sure that you're not providing a significant uh, thing. Now, that requires testing in the local area to make sure that the chemicals aren't causing uh, issues. But Mm. there have been so many of these done around the world. There is, as as, as I mentioned, a a huge body now of of understanding of these sorts of of, of issues. And some of the earlier scare stories, which I think some of which were just myths, quite quite frankly, Mm. about some of this have now been put to rest. But it needs properly regulating. Any industrial process can potentially cause uh, local environmental issues, and that has to be part of the whole package. Sure. And who has to make this decision finally, Malcolm, on the whole business of the of the seismic measurements? Well, ultimately, that'll be the government regulators, yeah. and uh, government regulates uh, this. It'll be through the Environment Agency and through other agencies that, that uh, look at this specifically. The ultimate commercial decision, of course, will be taken by the companies that want to uh, that want to do this. And as with all regulation, I think the aim for regulation is to end up with the best world that is possible. So the regulations could be, I mean, it's quite easy to regulate any industry out of existence, but that's not necessarily the best outcome for, for the environment or, or, or for people. Mm. On the other hand, it's quite easy to be so slack with your regulation that people are getting away with murder. And uh, the key is to be in between those. So the overall outcome is beneficial for the, uh, for the economy as a whole, the environment as a whole, but also pays proper attention to local concerns and local environmental issues. OK. Malcolm, thank you very much indeed. Malcolm Grunson there, Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the Imperial College in London, talking about fracking uh, and why it isn't perhaps as dangerous as everybody thought, but we're not yet completely convinced are we i mean i still look at the way that they do it and think to myself well it doesn't look very safe uh, but i'm not against it because i mean I, probably if i looked at how they get natural gas out of the north sea that wouldn't look particularly safe either or oil indeed out of the texan desert uh, none of it's particularly safe if you're drilling into the core of the earth uh, but we'll take your calls on it oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand if it makes it cheaper to get energy in this country i think we should attempt to make it work don't you <laughs>
Now, obviously, that music uh, would suggest to you that who we're going to talk to now is somebody from Fawlty Towers, you know, possibly the worst hotel, fictitious or otherwise, uh, in the history of British hotels. However, uh, the headline has changed slightly this morning uh, because in the sun it says faultless towers, and it's because a and b in Torquay has been voted the best in the world, uh, incredibly, uh, by TripAdvisor. It's won a Traveller's Choice Award. And we're going to speak now to Julian Banner-Price from the 25 Boutique B&B to find out just how great it is. Julian, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Congratulations, yeah. first of all, because uh, it's never easy to win these awards because there's so much competition. But um, but the B&B of, of old, I suppose, is, has died a death. You know, it's no longer likely to be uh, more like faulty towers and it's it's more likely to be like a luxury hotel, isn't it? Exactly. I think a, lo- a lot of people um, in recent years have started to, to find out that um, a B&B you can get so much more from a and b than the sort of thing we remember from Faulty Towers. Which, yeah. You know, the last episode of that went out 40 years ago. But That's we, incredible, isn't it? Yeah, we still hold a real special place in a half of Basil Faulty. Um, myself and my partner that runs the 25 here in Torquay, we really enjoy Faulty Towers, and it always gives us a giggle. But, you, you know, you won't find any views of... Uh, Herds of wildebeest sweeping majestically across the plain here. Um, <laughs> so, you know... Yes, we, we, it's Torquay, madam, down. I think you'll find is the correct response, right? Exactly. But, yeah. we, you know, things have moved on. You can get so much more in a and b these days. Um, and a lot of them, as included, is more like stepping into, a, like, a five-star luxury mm. hotel. But with the added element of really personal service um, we give our guests and things that you probably wouldn't get in a in a five-star hotel. No, indeed. And do you find yourselves busy all the year round now? Because, of course, Torquay is still very much, as it was known then, uh, part of the English Riviera. Um, but a lot of seaside towns in this country are kind of viewed as a little bit down their luck these days. Yeah, I mean, I think Torquay um, was down on its luck um, quite a few years ago. In recent years, it's seen so much um, investment and development. Lot, the, definitely the rise of the boutique B&B has helped that. Guests expect more these days. There's, you know, they, they, when you go away, you, you expect to have something more special than at home. You mm. know, people have got better TVs, nicer bathrooms. And I don't know about you, I want to actually go somewhere that feels nicer than home. Exactly, so yeah. There's, there's certainly a rise of that. And Torquay um, and the English Riviera in general has seen a real investment lately. And, um, and it's continuing. And we hope to attract a sort of a new breed of visitors but if they expect to find shared bathrooms and a landlady at the door with a rolling <laughs> pin and a curfew then I think you probably should go somewhere else Yes, ring the bell after 10 and all that sort of thing I mean <laughs> exactly. do you have, funnily enough we were talking about it in, in the office this morning, I mean do you do sort of much in the evenings because that was one of the other things about B&Bs was that you'd find that um, you know even I would say in the last 20 odd years if you know I've maybe gone a golfing trip or something and we'd stay in a and b and you'd come back at night but there's nothing really going on so you'd either just go to bed or you'd go back out again. Well, you know, Torquay's become like a real vibrant hub, and on the English Riviera down mm. here, um, there's, you know, it's become like a real foodie destination. Okay. I mean, obviously, we, we've got seafood down here, but lots of bars, clubs, live music. And whereas in the past, I think you used to go away on your two, two-week trip to a seaside resort, Torquay included, and you used to get dinner, bed and breakfast, so you'd stop in for your dinner in the evening as well and have the entertainment, almost never leave the, leave right, the room, right. leave the hotel. Now, we don't do dinner here, we just do bed and breakfast because only you know 10 minutes walk away is the sea okay. and, and lots of bars, restaurants, Michelin star restaurants and, and lots mm. of you know, live entertainment. So 
everyone wants to go out now, you know, and, and really enjoy what the area has right. to offer. We've got so many attractions and, and a beautiful coastline, so why would you want to stay in your in your hotel? Yeah, well, I mean, I can think of one or two reasons, but that's another story. What about <laughs> what about um, uh, the, the sort of the clientele? Do you get a lot of foreign tourists down in that part of the world? I see a lot of Dutch number yeah, plates well, whenever I'm down yeah, in the West Yeah, country. we get a lot of Dutch tourists. We get a lot of German tourists. Right. Um, Torquay's um, is very well known for the writer Agatha Christie, who used to live here right. and was born here. And, um, you know, the Germans and the Dutch are really, and Belgians, they're really interested in that angle. So we get a lot of them. But we also get, obviously, a lot of people from the UK. Mm. Staycation's probably on the rise um, this year. Everyone's fed up with Brexit. Yeah. So we're hoping for an influx from, from that. But a lot of, uh, a real mix. We're an adults-only hotel. Um, so people really enjoy leaving their own kids behind and enjoying... Um, um, a weekend away from the screaming kids, right. um, but we get lots of younger couples. Obviously, we've got a direct train down from London, so that that brings in a lot of people. Okay, um, now you've only got six rooms. I'm reading here. That's quite small, isn't rooms. it? I wish we got more. Now we, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Well, you might need to you might need to build an extension out the back for the new I season. Think, I think we might. You know, since this news hit hit the wires, it's um, we've just been in a, an absolute storm of uh, media mm. frenzy and that, that we've had to unplug the phone this morning it, it, it's just got it's just got so that's great though so i mean intense. it must, it must be fabulous. very very gratifying because it's one of those businesses that you know it's quite a hard working world it in is. which you're you're living you've you, you probably don't get much time off it's probably hard to take holidays people don't appreciate exactly how much work goes into making what it is that you do yeah i think a few people i've, I've heard said oh you know i might plan on running a b&b when when i retire yeah. And I'm thinking, well, when I retire, I want to retire. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I remember, seeing, I remember seeing a TV show. I can't remember what it was, but it was one of these, you know, young couple in London decides they've had enough of the rat race and they're going to go to Scotland <laughs> and open up a hotel, right? Yeah. And they had an absolute nightmare because, of course, everything cost more than they thought it was going to do. Absolutely. Getting people right, in yeah. through the door to buy anything and, and, and get, a, get a chef that worked properly and yeah, all of that. I mean, it's a nightmare. I mean, we do everything ourselves. We don't have any staff at all. Right. We're complete control freaks and like to you know, control every mm. part of the guest experience from when they come up the steps, open the door, greet them, give them a glass of fizz and a world-famous chocolate brownie till the moment that they leave and, and, and wish them on their way. So we do everything from the cleaning, the cooking, the works. But we do get a bit of time off in the summer when everyone's checked in. We're only 10 minutes from the seafront here. Check them all in. We go down to the seafront ourselves in our shorts and put our feet up and have a beer right. looking at the... Uh, our beautiful base, so um, we do get time off, so don't cry too much for us. Well, listen, I'm <laughs> delighted for you. You guys sound like you're doing a great job, and if I'm ever in Torquay, I'll come and look you up. Please, please look us up. I will. Thanks very much indeed. Julian Banner-Price there uh, from the B&B, &B, which is the best B&B &B in the world. It's called the 25 Boutique B&B &B in Torquay. Uh, it's the25.co.uk if you want to try and get in there. But I imagine it's going to be sold out for quite a while. They've only got six rooms. What a great success story. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 